as I was preparing this sermon, a couple of uh, characters from pop culture came to mind. We all remember Winnie the Pooh, right? Little teddy bear described as naive, maybe a bit slow-witted. He even knew that about himself, you know, but also friendly and thoughtful and steadfast and social. We loved Winnie. And he had some friends, Christopher Robin, of course, and Piglet, but then he also had Eeyore. Remember Eeyore, don't you? The old gray donkey, often described as pessimistic and gloomy and depressed. He was always sad. All you got to do is just, just Google Eeyore and click on images, and it's those classic Eeyore pictures, right? The old gray donkey with just a grief written all over his face. The, the, the cup was always half empty for Eeyore. He always looked at the dark side of life. He could turn lemonade into lemons, right? That was Eeyore. And then I thought, you know, I would never do this to my children, but my wife did. She introduced them to Debbie Downer. Some of you Saturday Night Live fans might remember Debbie Downer. She's a fictional character, Saturday Night Live. She's the pessimistic person who always, or frequently at least, adds bad news or negative things and feelings to a gathering. So Debbie Downer would show up at uh, Disney with all of her friends around a table, or she'd, she'd, she'd be in somebody's home as they're celebrating a meal, and everybody's talking, and everybody's having a, la a, a, a fun time, a good laugh, an encouraging time, and then Debbie Downer would add her news to the gathering. She would turn and look at the camera with this dour look on her face, and then wah, wah. She would just take everything that was up here and, go, and just bring it right down here. She had her own theme song. Maddie knows this one by heart. I'm going to try and get the tune right. You're enjoying your day. Everything's going your way. Then along comes Debbie Downer. Always there to tell you about a new disease, a car accident, or killer bees. You'll beg her to spare you. Debbie, please. But you can't stop Debbie Downer. Yay. Thank you very much. Again, she's pessimistic, she's gloomy, she's despondent. We all have our days, don't we? And our moments like that, but I hope on the whole, I hope it's not me. I hope I would never be described as Eeyore or Debbie Downer. I hope you wouldn't be either. I hope that you and I don't give off that kind of Vibe, if you will. I looked up what vibe means. It's a person's emotional state or it's the atmosphere of a place, like, like a restaurant has a vibe. It's a person's emotional state or an atmosphere of a place as communicated to and felt by others. We maybe communicate a vibe and and. People experience it from us. Life certainly has its challenges. 
its dangers, toils, and snares, and lament, expression of deep grief and sorrow is a true, legitimate category of emotion and what we bring to our relationship to God. But I'm not so sure it's meant to be the major chord of our emotional life. It's certainly not to be in light of Christmas. And when I say Christmas, I'm just not describing the fact that Jesus Christ or the eternal Son of God became a man in the virgin womb of his mother Mary and was born a babe in Bethlehem. When I say Christmas, I mean the whole story. That this babe who was born was born to die and to rise and to ascend and to reign forevermore and bring about the salvation of his people and they will reign with him forever and forever. Christmas, if you will, is just the first step in a great salvation that Jesus Christ has brought to his people. And certainly in the light of Christmas, pessimism or gloom or despondency is not meant to be the major vibe of the child of God. Christmas doesn't generate that kind of thing. It doesn't inspire that kind of thing. It seems to me that rather in a word, joy. Joy. John Piper's written a lot on joy. Here's how he defines it. Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. He goes on and says that it's a feeling it's an emotion, joy. I may be wrong here. I, th I think it's true to say that, that love would be the defining action of the Christian. I've got nobody to quote here or to back me up, and so correct me if I'm wrong. I wonder what the defining emotion of the Christian is to be. I wonder if joy might not be that. I want us to look at two Christmas passages today, and then if we have time, we're going to look at one of the letters of Paul together. But I want to start with a preliminary word that says, guilty as charged. Randy Alcorn is wonderful author. Many of you read his book, The Treasure Principle, years ago. Maybe one of his more recent books that became very, very popular was his book on heaven. He also wrote a book in 2015 called Happiness. And he was interviewed and was asked this question. Randy, as you know, there's a long-standing division in Protestant theology that goes like this. Happiness is a bubbly and superficial and circumstantial feeling that comes and goes. Joy is a deep-seated and enduring affection that endures. 
We see this in books and we hear this in sermons all the time. Joy and happiness are fundamentally different. You wrote your book to refute that discrepancy. So in summary fashion, how should Christians rightly think about happiness and joy? And then Randy Alcorn responds. I think the first thing we need to realize is that historically, there was no such distinction in the church and in the English language. You simply look up a secular dictionary, say Webster's Dictionary, and you will see joy defined as happiness and happiness defined as joy. They are synonyms. They have overlapping meanings. Biblically, I have asked people, could you show me any passage that suggests some contrast or even substantial difference between happiness and joy? And there just is no such thing. What I did was I used Logos Bible software that we're both familiar with, and I went through the Puritans and Spurgeon and Wesley and found the words joy and happiness used in close proximity within five, six, or seven words of each other. I found again and again and again that they were used synonymously, completely interchangeably. Jonathan Edwards cites John 15, 11, that Jesus' joy might remain in you. To prove this point, quote, the happiness Christ gives to his people is a participation of his own happiness. He didn't have to say, I actually mean joy. Of course, that is what Jesus meant. And Richard Baxter, he wrote, um, oh, I forget. He wrote this, the day of death is to true believers of happiness and joy. William Law spoke of the happiness of a lively faith, a joyful hope. Then there's Spurgeon, who again and again said, the more often I preached, the more joy I found in the happy service. He said, despite your tribulation, take full delight in God, your exceeding joy this morning, and be happy in him. He started one sermon this way, oh, cheerful, happy, joyous people, I wish there were more of you. Let the uppermost joy you have always be Jesus Christ himself. And then one other from Spurgeon. May you still come and then may your Christian life be fraught with happiness and overflowing with joy. Alcorn goes on. So this is just a really recent thing that developed. And one of the first people I found who really spoke out against happiness and contrasted it with joy was Oswald Sanders. And I love Oswald, uh, not Oswald, Oswald Chambers. And I love Oswald Chambers. My utmost for his highest is a great book. And so are other books that he wrote. But it is just pretty startling some of the things he said that were so dramatically anti-happiness. And so Alcorn is arguing that a distinction that I have so often made you know, listen, happiness is, is something that the world experiences. Happiness can come and go with your circumstances and the like. But, but joy is different. Joy is something that, that stays despite the circumstances. And Alcorn, at least, is arguing there's no biblical deal for that. Joy is happiness. A couple more sentences from him. If you look at different Bible translations, there are actually more than 100 verses in Scripture in various translations 
Now, I'm not talking about paraphrases, but actual Bible translations with the teams of Hebrew and Greek scholars, and they're also English experts. They use happiness and joy together in these hundred plus verses. For instance, in Esther chapter 8, verse 16, for the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. Jeremiah 31, 13, I will turn their mourning into joy and bring happiness out of grief. Proverbs 23, 25, give your father and mother joy. May she who gave you birth be happy. Psalm 92, 4, you, O Lord, have made me happy by your work. I will sing for joy because of what you have done. Psalm 32, verse 11, rejoice in the Lord and be happy, you who are godly. All of that to say that Christmas can make us happy, joyful, glad. In Matthew chapter 2, let's go there first. Matthew chapter 2. In chapter 1, we got the genealogy of Jesus and then the description of the birth of Jesus Christ. And now in chapter 2, we're going to see the Magi coming to find the baby who has been born king of the Jews. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Most scholars believe they're probably coming from Babylon, and these Magi were Men of the stars, astronomers. In verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star, the New American Standard says, in the east. The ESV, the NIV have it right. For we saw his star as it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. If you've been around here for several years, you know I read a book a few years ago by a New Testament scholar named Colin Nichol called The Great Christ Comet. I think he makes an incredible case that this star of Bethlehem was in fact a comet. When they said, we saw his star rising in the east, or when we saw his star at its rising, they are referring particular time in a star's annual career, if you will, in which it comes up on the eastern horizon in the morning, just on the eastern horizon, just before the sun comes up, and then by the brightness of the sun's light, it's gone. It's called its heliacal rising. And when Herod asks them in verse 7, hey, tell me, when's the first time the star appeared? That's a different technical idea. That's the first time that the comet would have been seen by the naked eye in the sky. 
And so by what we know Herod did, by eventually trying to have or having all of the kids in Bethlehem up to two years old killed, they probably had said to him, it first appeared over a year ago. And then we saw it rise, apparently probably just a couple of months before they arrived. And they had seen some marvelous things at that rising. Colin Nichol thinks we're to put it together with Revelation chapter 12, and we'll get there in our study of Revelation, but apparently what he believes they saw is that Virgo came up in the sky, just as John describes in Revelation 12, the sun at her head, the moon at her feet, and and that they saw the comet in her womb, and then as if it was born, they put some things together And they believed at that moment the Messiah was born. And so they made their trip to Israel to find the Messiah. They asked, where's the Messiah to be born? Herod gets his guys in Bethlehem. And so in verse 8, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Of course, he's lying. He wants to kill this one who was born king of the Jews. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen when it rose, went out before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. Colin Nickel makes the great case. He has some beautiful pictures of what comets do when they are standing up as if they're pointing straight down. You can Google Comet on the horizon, and these pictures will pop up everywhere. Of, and it, it, it looks like the, the star is just pointing. And apparently, if Nickel is right, as they came to Bethlehem, there that comet stood in the horizon, pointing to one particular house. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I ask you, was this gloomy? Was this a gloomy great joy? A despondent great joy? I've got to imagine that they were excited about this. Sorry, it's popping a lot. Excited about this, delighted about this, smiling about this. We have found it. The one anticipated in the Old Testament scriptures has been born. And we have come to find it. Oh, and behold, we're here. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. When the Magi found the Son of God born, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Look over in Luke chapter 2 now. Matthew, Mark, Luke. This one's quite familiar to us. The shepherds out in the fields in chapter 2, verse 8. 
verses 1 to 7, describe the birth of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 8, in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping their watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Same word that the Magi, describing what the Magi did. They, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Y'all know I love this. In Greek, it's karon, joy, megalane. Mega, mega joy, great joy. And the angel says to these fearful shepherds, hey, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of Karan Megalane, mega joy, mega happiness, mega delight. And it is tied in particular, they said, because a Savior has been born. A Savior has been born. If you'll remember the story in, jo in Matthew chapter 1, when Joseph found out that his betrothed, Mary, was pregnant, his first thought is that she's been unfaithful to me, and I'm going to, to separate from her, divorce her, and... But he was a kind man, a righteous man. He, he, he wanted to do it in the best way possible. But an angel appeared to him and said, no, 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 no. The baby in her belly is of the Holy Spirit. And the angel said to Joseph, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. I bring you good news of great joy, a Savior has been born. The angel saying something like this, the reality of what has just happened will bring great joy to those who will embrace it. This is good news. And those who will embrace the realities of this news will experience great joy. It'll make you happy. It'll make you glad. It'll make you delighted and jubilant. It will make you smile inside and out. And those of us who have embraced him know this well. Our sins have been forgiven. That's our biggest problem, you all, is that we are sinners and our sins, right, separated us from God. And what did we need? We needed a Savior. Someone who would save us from our sins, like the angel said. And Jesus Christ has come to save us, to forgive us of our sins, 
to reconcile us to God as Liz read, to redeem us and adopt us and indwell us and care for us and lead us and help us and take us to eternal glory. Amen? Amen. This is good news of great joy. This is the news, the kind of news that we rejoice exceedingly with great joy like the Magi do. And so I think maybe it's enough to say that that's the foundational joy. It's the fundamental joy of of the Christian. I have been saved by this one who came from heaven's glory for me. And that's not Debbie Downer kind of news. That's not Eeyore kind of news. That's joyful, happy, delightful, jubilant kind of news. I was going to show you joy throughout the book of Philippians, but I'm not so sure we have time for that. I do want to show you, though, take a look at Psalm 42. Since we're not going to go to Philippians, I was just going to quote you Psalm 42, but I want, you to, I want to show it to you. Listen, joy is a fruit of the Spirit, right? In, in Galatians chapter 5, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, I've thought about that a little bit. I, I sometimes make much of the fact that the first one is love, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love. Greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love that you have for one another. Fervently love one another from the heart, Peter said. And so it is that defining action of the Christian, but then what's right after it? It's a joy. That's a fruit of the Spirit of God alive and well in your heart and mine. It's that our life is to be characterized by joy, happiness, because we've been forgiven, reconciled, adopted, indwelt by the Spirit of God, helped in life, guided by Him, all of the promises of the age to come. Joy, even in the midst of our most troubling times, right? One thing to say about Philippians that so many of you know is that he wrote it while in prison expecting to die. And yet joy is all over the book. And he commands us, rejoice always. Again, I say, rejoice. So we got to ask, how? How can we help ourselves become more joyful, more happy in the Lord? Look at Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water brooks, 
Soul, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with a throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with a voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. But he wasn't in that place then, a place of joy and thanksgiving. Verse 5, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Oh, my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Sometimes we don't feel joyful. Sometimes we don't feel glad and happy and jubilant. Sometimes maybe the, the main emotion of our life is not joy. Paul tells us to rejoice always. Again, I will say, rejoice. First Thessalonians 5, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing in Everything, give thanks. How did the psalmist try to pull himself up and out of his despair? I think it's as simple as saying he talked to himself rather than listened to himself. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are there talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday. Somebody's talking. Who's talking? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment and I will speak to you. That's pretty good, isn't it? Does yourself speak to you 
Again, Piper commenting on this. Do you do that? I've found, or I find that given the way I'm wired, much of my self-talk is very defeatist. I tell myself all kinds of bad news. And I can imagine my bad self saying, you're supposed to be giving me good news. I've got the bad news. And I team up with my old self and say some more bad news. He's got bad news and I've got bad news. And no wonder we get discouraged. So here we are on this side of the cross. Jesus has come. How would you preach to yourself now? You preach the gospel to yourself. It goes like this. Listen, self. Listen up, Piper. If God is for you, who can be against you, self? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for you, self, will he not with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against you, God's elect? It's God who justifies No, it's Jesus who died. Yes, who was raised. He's at the right hand of God. He intercedes for you, self. What can separate you, self, from the love of God? So Piper's just trying to illustrate taking the word of God and and talking to ourself when our self is so busy talking to us. Maybe we can remind ourselves this Christmas season. Rejoice exceedingly with great joy. I bring you good news of great joy. Mitch, rejoice always. Fruit of the Spirit is joy. And remind ourselves this Christmas, what incredible stuff that God sent his son for me. To forgive me of my sins. To make me his own. To take care of me from A to Z. And even in the midst of my trials and troubles, to be with me every single step of the way. When I'm not feeling joyful, when I'm not feeling glad, when I'm not feeling happy. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you downcast within me? Hope in God. Friends, we have joyful news in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Rejoice always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let's pray together. Lord, it's uh, everywhere this time of year. Drive around the neighborhood and up on, uh, up in the yards of some of our neighbors. Joy, J-O-Y. Hanging on our Christmas tree. Joy playing over the radio waves nearly everywhere we go. Joy to the world. And how right it is. This is good news of great joy. That there has been born a Savior. Thank you for him. Thank you for your salvation. 
Thank you for helping us and blessing us and caring for us deeply. And Lord, for any of our friends here today, brothers and sisters who are in a difficult spot, and where joy is hard to find, where despondency seems to be the major key of their life, would you help them? Would you encourage them? Comfort them? Help us to know them and love them Lord, maybe teach us all this discipline of the psalmist who, rather than listen to himself all the time, would talk to himself and remind himself of the great truths of his God, the great truths of our salvation, the great truth of God's great care for us, the promises that we have through Jesus. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.